Holy moly, folks. I uh, just sat down for two hours with my man's the general Jim Walker. Um, and I think that God has proved himself faithful more in Jim's life than probably anybody that I know. Um, J- Jim's story is just incredible. And the way that God has, has proved himself faithful in his life is super encouraging. So I'm very excited for you guys to hear it. Uh, he has pretty severe dyslexia. Uh, but he didn't know he had dyslexia for the first 60 years of his life. So uh, it was really cool to hear how God has like proved himself faithful through that. I mean, people doubted him or skeptical about him for his whole life, um, but he made it through. He's one of the most brilliant men that I've ever met. Like he has a PhD in what, I don't even remember, like biochemistry and whatever. He's so smart. Some of the things he was talking about, you hear me like laughing because I'm just like, I have no idea what he's saying, but it was so cool to hear. Um <laughs> He, his wife's incredible. I'm hopefully going to have her on the show at at some point. Um, but he is just a man of extreme spiritual discipline. So like one, one of the things I hear is he asked God one day, he's like, Hey, I want you to wake me up every day at 5am. So I have time to read your word. And he said every day since I believe it was 97, God has woken him up at 5am, no alarm clock, nothing. And he just like reads his word and prays. Um, he and his wife fast for four days a week, like 24 hour fasts, four days a week. Um, he's crazy. And so you guys got to listen to this, uh, listen to the whole thing. Like if you got to break it up, do that. But, uh, cause we get to a lot of good stuff at the end. So anyways, without further ado, here is Jim Walker. I hope you guys enjoy. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this episode of The Grain of Salt. My name is Mikey Stewart, and today I am delightfully joined by the general, Jim Walker. What's up, Jim? Well, this is going to be an exciting time because I have no idea what I'm in for. Hey, you're in for uh, a good time. Why do they call you the general? I think that's something that Brian brought up, and I have no no idea. I think it's because... um, with the building, I was rather forceful, a little draconian, because yeah. I had expectations that people were going to fulfill the contractual obligations. And, and when they didn't, you had to put your foot did, down? Then we had to have a, a talk. Yeah, sure. What was your involvement with? Because you were a big part of being in this building for Veritas Church. and In the very beginning, how I got involved is... Um, the church had a plan in the Corville site, mm-hmm. and the church was having trouble with the city of Corville. And so Mark called me up and uh, said, could you help? Because I had had some experience in working with them. And so I said, sure, I'll help. Um, and I found out what the status of their project was. My advice was, I'll encourage you, ask for your money back. It's really? A, it's a free question. It'll save you millions because they're rather difficult to work with at times. Corville is? Corville is. Yeah. And they're very prescriptive, and yet in the end, um, you end up getting less. It's costing you more. Hmm. And so Mark asked me to be involved in that, and so that was at the very start where once they got out of that, um, I spent quite a bit of time looking for another site and uh, Mark got a call from Scott Anderson mm-hmm. about this one, and I'd looked at probably 30 different sites around 
town to see if I could find another place for the church. Yeah. And then Mark brought me out here and said, what do you think about this site? And I said, <laughs> it's, it was big cornfield. Yeah. And as Mark said so aptly, um, now we look like we're stupid. We're buying a cornfield, but in five years, we'll look brilliant. Yeah, no kidding. Well, it didn't last five years. Look at it. So I know. It's already starting to so I shape up real well. two years to help bring to the church this, this place. And I worked with the lawyers and engineering firms and wrote the contract for the building. It's awesome. Wrote all the stuff. Anyway. Now you're the general. (laughs) So it was something that I wanted to do because I had passion for the work of the church. It's got a wonderful ministry. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the church to be able to get something where they didn't pay too much. Mm -hmm. And it could be done on time and on budget. And that's what happened largely. That's great. Yeah. It's been a huge blessing for us. We love it. So. Uh, why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit of your background, like where you grew up, what your family was like. Okay. Um, just, My, yeah. I was born in Springfield, Missouri in, uh, on April 5th, 1947, and shortly after my birth, uh, my family moved to Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, an interesting experience to grow up in Texas. Um it was a oil boom, booming place. It was very mm. international. The schools that I went to were largely very international because we had people all over the world that were coming to work with the major oil companies for engineering, petroleum engineering. And so all their kids mm. would end up in school, and so you'd end up getting to know all these people. And so it was very, very interesting environment to grow up in. Mm. Um I don't know what to tell. The probably the thing that was the um, it'll kind of blend into my school, but one of the things that I didn't know at that point in time in my life was that in school I had a very difficult time learning. Yeah. In fact, I was known in school as probably. Um, somebody that had learning problems mm-hmm. but nobody knew exactly what that meant but i had a very difficult time so for the most part i could hardly read i couldn't spell i couldn't do math and this was all the way through elementary and so as a result of that it created challenges for relationships sure because people didn't understand why i couldn't talk why I had difficulty processing, why I had difficulty responding, and as a result that that really largely affected my relationships. Hmm. I was actually in a Catholic school uh, for uh, the first five grades, and it was an interesting place, but I got kicked out. And How the reason come? I got reason I got kicked out is that the nuns were rather permissive, and there was a... Um, a boy in there that had um, mental health problems. Mm-hmm. And he would jump on top of these girls in class, and he would just start pulling their hair out. And one day, Whoa. Um, I got involved, and I pulled the guy off and just beat the tar out of him. Really? And you got kicked out for that? I got kicked out of school. How old were you? Uh, fifth grade. 
Dang. It it, it was quite a <laughs> difficult circumstance, yeah. but uh, that's what happened. And so then I went to another school, <laughs> and I didn't last in that school probably more than a week. And then so then I went to another school. Why didn't you last more than a week? School. You know, actually, I don't remember. Hmm. But I knew I was. It was called Black Elementary, and I know I wasn't there very long. Hmm. And um, so that really shaped a lot of my early years. And then when I was in junior high, actually the junior high school uh, was probably had about four thousand people in it. So it was a huge. School oh my goodness! In Texas. In Texas, and. So it was an interesting environment to grow up in because this was in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And in the 50s, um, um, I don't know if anybody's ever seen the uh, West Side Story, mm -hmm. you know, about all the the blackboard jungle and the gangs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That was Houston. It was all gangs. Dang. And it was um, quite an interesting environment. It was a pretty tough environment to grow up in. And in the 50s, the influence of the culture was from the World War II generation, and these people had come back from the war, mm -hmm. and they were very no-nonsense. Mm. So to give you an idea of how I grew up, what my family life was yeah. like, it was not Christian. Okay. <clears throat> and my dad was a master drill sergeant in the Army. And his responsibility was to be meaner than a junkyard dog mm. and prepare people to go into World War II. And he said his role was to make them tough enough that they could survive. Mm. That influenced my life. I was going to say, that carried over in the family? It carried over in the family. My dad was very no-nonsense, mm. no excuses. You did what you were supposed to do, and if you didn't, uh, you would— be sorry you didn't. Hmm. And um, he was a very, very no-nonsense, tough man. And in fact, I think one of the years he was the boxing championship uh, champion for the uh, U.S. Army. Really? So he, he was large. He was about 6'3 plus. Jeez. And he was a very large man. So he was one that you respected. Yeah. Did you have a good relationship with him? Yeah, for the most part, we had a pretty good relationship when I um, did everything I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. He he had zero tolerance for failure. Mm. Don't you don't do that? Did you see any of that carry over into <clears throat> you, the way that you parented your kids, or did it make you feel like, oh, I want to parent my kids differently than my dad did with me? I would say, as you would expect, I took the opposite approach with my kids. Sure. Much more encouraging, much more tolerant, mm -hmm. and my dad was particularly uh, intolerant. Mm. And he didn't, he didn't, as I said, he didn't like failure, and that proved to be a problem and shaped my school. Um, but in the rest of aspects of my life, um, I was very he expected hard work. So. In uh, elementary school, latter part of elementary school, and into junior high, I had a big lawn care business and also uh, had a paper route. Hmm. And in the end, when I, we left uh, Houston when I was 16, I had uh, probably the largest paper route in Houston. Really? 
Yeah, because we were on the edge of town. It was huge. Hmm. Uh, so that it was turned out to be a very good thing for me. Hmm. Um, the other aspect of it that also shaped my life was because of my struggle with communication and learning and being able to respond to people, mm-hmm. I ended up not having any friends. Hmm. It was very difficult to relate to people because people didn't understand why you couldn't relate and talk. And so as a result, I ended up spending most of my elementary school years, the latter part of them, and my junior high years pretty much by myself. Hmm. So as my dad said, you need to do something. So he bought me some guns and I spent all my time hunting on the weekends Hmm. by myself. So you you would never do that now, but in elementary school, I had shotguns, 22s. No way. Yeah. You just go out by yourself on the weekends? Just go out by myself. Dang. What were some of those other things that like were different growing up in the 50s than you would imagine somebody your age growing up in, you know, 2019 would have to deal with? I would say the biggest thing is the fact that there is nobody around that will guide you in choices. What do you mean? Let's say you do something that's rather risky. Mm -hmm. Here you you get a lot more input. There's a lot more communication. There's a lot more narrative. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more information out there in the culture about what's good choices and what's bad choices and the consequences of those choices. Back then, for the most part, consequences were only borne by the individual who made stupid choices. It's not... Society today is more of a collective. You have a lot more integration of parents and families. They share insight about parenting. How many parenting books are there? Right. How many help books are there? How much do school teach you about what what are what's appropriate what's not appropriate back then it was only about reading writing arithmetic mm. your aspects of life were nothing more than you learn it on your own and you suffer the consequences for it so interesting that was more individual and as a result everybody had consequences of their own actions that they have to live with and if you made a wrong mistake, you did something stupid or something, you got injured, um, you know, it's kind of on you. But here in society, there's much more collective sense of togetherness. There's much more information about what's good and what's not to do. Back then, if it's not, it's trial and error. Hmm. So I would say that was the major difference. Interesting. And that really shaped the way the culture worked. Um, and so then, therefore, it culture was a lot less forgiving. Back then? Back then. And as a result, people grew up, and um, I would say fundamentally, you'd end up, if you survived, you were tough. It, it's, it's survival. It's really Darwinistic, hmm. whereas... Now it's more collaborative and cooperative and supportive. Back then, it's survival of the fittest. That's what I was going to ask. Is Do you think that 
nowadays people are just more soft because they just don't have to like they don't have to necessarily do that hard of things anymore like for fun on the weekends you would go out and hunt as a young boy nobody does that anymore but that's like hard stuff like if you kill something i'm assuming you gut it out in the field you You drag it it back that's right like what you do with it there are a lot of kids today who would i mean they would have no idea what they're doing they would just not bottom line be tough enough to like do something like that do you think society as a whole is like gotten soft i don't know very very soft and i (laughs) and the reason i would say that is that you're always have a backstop what do you mean a backstop is a term that let's say you have somebody throwing a ball to the catcher and the catcher mitches it you got a fence behind you sure. to stop it. So then, therefore, that's what constitutes a backstop. Mm. Back then, there was no backstop. Hmm. If you failed, it's on you. Dang. And then the consequences of that, you had nobody come in to bail you out. So, for example, my dad said, if you ever picked up and hauled the prison, don't call. Why do you say that? Because it was a point of saying, you made the choice. Sure. You suffered the consequences. Don't come whine to me. Mm. And so I would say nowadays, yeah. if somebody did something wrong, you got a parent to support, you got a lot of intervention, you got society, you got counselors, you got all this stuff to support you in the decision. And so as a result, you're all the time being lifted up and encouraged and mm-hmm. get great self esteem. And I would say people of today are soft. Dang, man. Yeah, I agree. That's that's crazy. How did any of that stuff uh, play mm-hmm. into You served some time in Vietnam, right? Yep. How did you see just like a generation of tough people? Like, what was it like for you to go to Vietnam with those kind of guys? People who just like survived. <laughs> I would say the people that I was in Nam with were survivalist. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I think shaped who they were was that um, it only takes you a month or six weeks to figure out either your number's up or it's not. And after that, it's every day is just a day. You have no clue hmm. whether or not you're going to make it through that day or not. Every day was a day you just, you don't know. And so you you took that as a way of life. And when things are like that with a way of life, it's not fatalistic. It intends to make you more intentional mm-hmm. about what you do, the choices that you make. You think about the consequences of where you're stepping, where you're walking, who's around you. Mm. So life is much more intentional, but yet at the same time, when you see somebody killed, well, their time was up. Hmm. And so it, it was kind of a matter-of-fact kind of life. Um, but I was going to um, back up and say something about that I think was really important mm-hmm. about my growing up in Houston. Yeah. There was something that occurred that happened to me one night. I was... That has that really shaped my entire life, even mm-hmm. today. Yeah, I was 
lying on the driveway looking up at the stars and we were on the edge of town and it was really dark out there and you could see the vastness of the yeah. the universe and it was such a cool thing. And I said, I looked up there and I said, God, I know that you're there and I'm going to spend my life finding you. Really? That moment has shaped my entire life. How old were you? I was uh, eight. Eight years old? Eight years old. And you just look up in the starry night sky and you you just like feel that God exists? And not only God exists, but that I had every intention of finding Him. Hmm. And for the most part, I would say not for the most part, it has completely shaped my life. Dang. And, That's cool. And in that, there's... There's three convergent things in my life that come together to really reflect my life. Mm-hmm. And those convergent things shape my life and shape the direction of my life and shape the outcome of my life. One was making that commitment early on that I wanted to find God. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know who He was and what it was about. Secondly, God in my entire life, honored my voraciousness of finding God. Hmm. It's something that every, even when I was very young, I was very intentional about doing things that I could look for the presence of God. And remember, I didn't have anybody to teach me. I didn't have any, there was nothing to read. There was nothing, it was just on your own. You had to figure it out, kind of like everything else. But the third thing that really shaped the way my life was directed, and God used it to show me proof of His presence, was my inability to learn, mm-hmm. my dyslexia. And actually, I didn't even know I had dyslexia until I was over 60. I didn't even know what Seriously? it was. I didn't even know what it was. I just knew I couldn't read very well, I couldn't write. I was always the first one out in the spelling bee. I was always the first one out because I couldn't write. I couldn't write a complete sentence. I couldn't read. And so hmm. it was a, a very long process in school. But that dyslexia shaped the influences that I had in life in school and allowed God to incrementally direct my steps of my life. And I have monument after monument after monument of proof that God has shaped and guided my life. Hmm. It's just been an incredible, unbelievable experience that has just unfolded. It just it never stops. And so with that, two things came out of the early days of learning disability. One is that I ended up actually through the my entire high school when I graduated mm-hmm. in high school, I never had a personal friend. Jeez. I lived my life. Just because kind of, people, like you couldn't learn the same way they could and stuff? I couldn't learn. Everybody thought I was stupid. Back then, if you couldn't learn, you were, the word wasn't illiterate, you were a moron. Mm. And so people would label you and they would keep away from you because they couldn't figure out what was wrong with you. Mm -hmm. 
And so then I ended up in, actually, as it turned out, my brother had it worse than I did. And he never got through seventh grade. Wow. And so it was very problematic. And my my other siblings have it to varying degrees, Mm -hmm. but nothing like my brother or me. And then um, the other thing that kind of is very important to shape, the reason it's important to look at the dyslexia at this time is that When I got through high school, well, actually in junior high, uh, the member I told you how big the junior high was, mm-hmm. my sister was 15 months behind me in school. And to show you how big the school was, the principal, you can't imagine how big it is and you can't know the people, but he knew that my sister was one of the best students in the school and I was at the absolute bottom. Like the you were the bottom, bottom of the list. Bottom. Dang. And he said, and he came up to me one day and he said, I think you're the dumbest kid in this school, and why can't you be like your sister? He said that to you? Yeah. So you can see there's... Oh, a, my there's, gosh. <laughs> there's, there's less... When you grow up in the 50s, yeah. and this would have been in the late 50s, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, it would have been the late 50s, early 60s, um, times were different then. Yeah. Would Would you think somebody would do that now? Never. Never, of course not. You lose your job right away. <laughs> yeah, but you see, you've got checks and balances in place. Yeah. Back then, it was no checks and balances. Mm. But the reason that it was important was that this started me on my path of my education. And mm-hmm. let me explain what I mean. Yeah. In 11th grade, I took a chemistry class, and I worked so hard at that class, and I got a B minus, and I had never gotten a B anything throughout my entire life. Most things were either D's or F's, almost mm-hmm. always. And I got a B minus because I thought it was so cool. Hmm. So when I graduated from high school, mm-hmm. um. I applied for college, and I applied for a state school. And state schools had to take anybody that applied. Really? Right, back then. Mm. But they denied me. No way. And the reason they denied me was that on my entrance exams, they considered me illiterate. And so then, therefore, I couldn't Mm. go to school there. So my 11th grade chemistry teacher took me to a small liberal arts school there in Springfield, Missouri, because we had moved back from Texas in Springfield mm-hmm. when I was uh, just 16, or, yeah, I think about then. And she took me into the school and said, believe in him. He can do it. Hmm. And so she got me in on probation into the school And in the summer before, I took a remedial English class. Well, I was determined to be successful in school. So I was one person that I think I closed the library every night for Mm -hmm. four years. Jeez. I worked harder than anybody worked. And 
I was kind of known for that. And as a result, I actually I dated the homecoming queen for a while, but she came up to me one night <laughs> in the library at 11 o'clock on Friday night and said, you're the bo- most boring person I've ever known. No I've got to leave. And I said, I'll see you after the library closes. But that was the end of that. Dang. <laughs> but in the end, when I graduated from college, I, I got into college on probation and I graduated on probation. I ended up probably about a 3-2, 3-3, which was yeah, amazing. pretty good. And I had three majors. Wow. Chemistry, biology, and geology. Holy. So I got those three majors in four years. Wow. And so the, the my point of saying was this, is that that woman... My teacher started on a path of continuing that reflected my life for all these years. So everything new that I tried to do, Mm -hmm. going to grad school, apply for a job, get promotions in job, there's one underlying theme that always happened is that Everybody would always be suspicious. I don't think we want to hire you. I don't think we want to have you in school. There was always this hesitation. Mm -hmm. So then um, God got me into school through intervention. Otherwise, in the absence of that monument, I would never have been in school. Yeah. So then... I figured if he got me in school, then what was next? Mm-hmm. So then um, I, I went in the Peace Corps and applied and went through the training. But at the end of training in the Peace Corps, they wanted me not to teach chemistry. They wanted me to teach English. Well, because they had more needs. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I wasn't very good in English, so I said I couldn't do that. So I ended up leaving. And so then that's when I got drafted and was sent to Vietnam. Hmm. So in Vietnam, um, we got there, um, and shortly after we got there, we got arrived in Da Nang. Uh, we were pulled out in a couple of weeks, and we ended up being out in the field for the next 13 months. No kidding. Um, we just either lived in the field or some make make a fire base. That's pretty much what we did. Hmm. My time was in North Central near Saigon, but also near the Contien, which is near the DMC. And then we did some work near Cambodia, and we went into Laos. We were part of the invasion in Laos. But then the thing that was interesting about it, knowing that God was with me. I had two circumstances that happened to me that really reflected that God had something for me to do in life. Mm-hmm. And so then, therefore, my time was not going to happen in Vietnam. The first one was very early on. We, I don't know, we must have gotten out of a Chinook, and they dropped us in this field a kind of a hilly type field and we were walking across it and the guy right in front of me stumbled on something and I said what is that 
And so we dug it out with our, our uh, bayonets, and what it was, they made a mistake, and they had put us in and dumped us off in a U.S. Marine minefield. And so we were in a minefield, and he had kicked a three-pronged pressure mine, and it didn't go off. You're kidding. It didn't go off. And this is a U.S. minefield? Yes. Oh, my they, goodness. They missed it. We were in the wrong place. And so I thought, ah, because the reason cow. we knew it was a U.S. Marine minefield is we dug it up, and it says U.S. Marines on the mine. No way. It was a three-pronged pressure mine. So I thought, well... <laughs> God, thank you very much. Yeah. And then the second <laughs> the second time that was the most that really started a path of a lot more intentionality about God is that I was on the edge of the firebase and um, they were shooting in these what are called 122 millimeter rockets, and these rockets are probably six feet tall, maybe seven feet tall. Wow! And they're not very good at aiming them. So what they do is they walk them in. What they mean is they shoot one, they reorient the uh, launch, sure, thing, and they shoot the next one, and so then therefore, and and they were short. <clears throat> and I remember when I watched this, and I said. This thing is going to land right on my head because it was in perfect line. All they were doing is is uh, turning up the azimuth so it had enough arc hmm. to hit where I was. And we were in the reason. And they you're were, watching them do this? Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, I couldn't see them, but I could see where the rockets were coming from. Yeah. And the thing that was the reason they were doing it is that the Chinooks just dropped off two loads of 81 millimeter mortar. And they were trying to blow them up. And so they wanted to walk them in. And so the third one shot, and it was just at the edge of the concertina wire, and I knew the fourth one was going to hit right by the, the um, load that just gotten dropped off. And I was right by there in a little oh, ditch. Oh, man. And I was going to get up and run because I knew this was it. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody... Or something was there and said, stay down, do not move. I didn't know who said that. Sheesh. And that rocket hit, and it was the dud. No way. It hit between me and where the mortars were. And it just didn't blow up? It didn't blow up. went right in the ground. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. So there's two aspects of that that are really important. One of which is that when I, as soon as it hit, I looked up and there was nobody there. And the reason that I, I was in, knew that nobody was there because there was a great deal of distance between where I was and the next bunker. And it was so far away, nobody could have been there. I mean, it was just like, say, stay down, Wham! the thing hit, and then I looked up, and there was nobody there. So I figure it must have been an angel yeah. or God of saying, damn. Dang. That said something very important to me, that I had something to do for God. Sure. And secondly, 
even more importantly, was that I could hear the voice of God. Hmm. That was a, a big deal. Hmm. So then, when I wow. got when I got back from Vietnam, I tried to apply for a job. Mm-hmm. Not try. I applied for jobs, and I could not get anybody to respond to my resume. So it wasn't as if I was didn't have a college education mm-hmm. and go through this. But nobody would back then. Nobody would hire Vietnam vets. Why? And the reason is that you were considered baby killers. Jeez. Because of the way the nature of the war was, you know, all the the stuff, the scenes that you would see, and all the famous scenes you see, these little kids and napalm and all this kind of stuff that we were the we were the scourge of the earth. Dang. And but you got drafted. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> Dang. So what happened was that, like for example, when you arrived in the airport from Vietnam, people would spit on you. No way. So it's you're talking about how things are different today than back then. Yeah, they're quite a bit different. Sheesh. But in that, the purpose of it was because I couldn't get a job. I ended up staying in Kansas City with a group of girls. I was in this big house, and there were, I think, six or seven girls living in this house. And I'd known this girl, and I dated this girl before I'd gone. And actually, in her grace, she wrote me every single day in Vietnam. Hmm. It was a cool thing to have some connection. Yeah. But anyway, I stayed in the house with all the girls, and I slept on a sleeping bag in the hallway. <laughs> and And so... One, and this starts a new chapter of my life. Yeah. One day, we decided to go swim in a pond in Kansas. And so somebody got in a car, and we all went to Kansas. So I had on blue jean shorts, a T-shirt, tennis shoes. Yeah. And so we swam, and then we were coming back. And at the stop sign, the stoplight, at 39th and Rainbow, I just felt absolutely overwhelmed that I had to get out. And I said, you got to let me out. I, I need to go in this building. And this building was a five- or six-story building, just a plain block brick building, no signs or anything on it. I said, i got to go in that building. What did you feel? Like, how did you feel that? You just... I just... I was overwhelmed with... If you ever had a sense of overwhelming thing that you you got to do something, but it doesn't make rhyme or reason. Well, that's what happened. Hmm. So I got out of the car, and they said, do you realize how far away you are? from?" And I said, I've got to do this. So I walked in the building. I went all over the floors, and I didn't know what it was. But I went, and I saw these signs that say anatomy, physiology, microbiology, biochemistry and I thought this is a school of some kind Mm -hmm. so I walked and I said oh I had biochemistry once in college so I walked into the office and this was almost closing time near five o'clock yeah Friday afternoon everybody wants to go home right and I asked I said how does somebody apply for school here and so this 
woman came out and said, well, come in and I'll, I'll talk to you. And obviously, and I had a beer that afternoon, so I'm sure I smelled like beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened was that she talked to me about how you would go ahead and apply. And this was actually, this is the University of Kansas Medical Center. Hmm. But you didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I said, how do you apply? And she said, I've got a wonderful idea. Because I told her what my background was. And I said, you'd probably be a good student for this, having a major in biology and chemistry, both. So she said, start school. Go ahead and start graduate school on Monday morning. And this was 5 o'clock. This is 8 o'clock on Monday morning. Our new medical school class is starting. 200 medical students are coming to class, and you just step, stay in the back, and you take all the classes with the medical students, and then you apply for school. And once you get your application in, you'll go through the normal. You take the GRE, mm-hmm. <clears throat> submit your resume, get your, um, not resume, your um, transcript, right, and then get some letters of recommendation. So that's what I did. So I was doing the classes, and I was doing very well. It was very exciting to be with all these 200 medical students, which are the cream of the crop, of course. Yeah. And um, so then I prepared and took my GRE, and I got the results and had to send them to school. Now, this you won't believe, but this is (laughs) absolutely true. I sent my GRE sent my transcripts and everything to the selection committee, and they said, you're not the students, the kind of student we want. And I said, what's going on? She said, do you know what you got on your GRE? I said, no. Three percentile. Wow. Three. Now, just think, if you guessed it, you can get 25%. Yeah, no kidding. Well... One of the things with dyslexic is you have a hard time reading and interpreting and then answering the intent of the question. So it's a very it's a it's a difficult process to go through. Yeah, can you explain to me and everybody listening like what dyslexia actually is? Dyslexia is one of a continuum of learning disabilities all the way from dysgraphia all the way to autism. Um, Dyslexia is kind of one in the middle. Mm -hmm. And what it does is you have problems converting sounds and phonics and intonations of words into words that ring true to what you're saying. And then once they're in there, you have in your brain that you have to process them understand them, and then you have to bring it back out and respond. So what it does, it enables you to respond, but you have a slower response. And let me give you a little more background about dyslexia. Dyslexia is a group where you have trouble looking at figures or words or sounds and incorporating them into a language that allows you to communicate. A child, when they're born, is largely right brain, 
but it doesn't take very long as they start learning of sounds and words and so forth and start speaking, they move to a left brain. Mm-hmm. Most people are left brain. Dyslexics are both. They right brain because they never make the full transition between learning from right brain to left brain. And that's important for two things. One of which is when dyslexics learn as opposed to let's say, an average individual. Dyslexics, when they learn, you create neurons. That's the basis of learning. Mm -hmm. But dyslexics have pockets of neurons as they learn that are not by one another. So what makes you, let's say, a good verbal facilitator as you learn to read and so forth, to spell and so forth, your words and figures and language are aggregated in one area. As you continue to learn, they aggregate in columns of neurons, and those columns of neurons are adjacent to one another. Okay. And so then, therefore, it's like um, electricity. If it only has to go a short distance, it goes very quickly. Mm. But dyslexics learn in pockets. Hmm. So they have pocket here, a pocket there, a pocket there, a pocket there. So if you said a word that was a multisyllable phonics base, the sounds are not aggregated together in a dyslexic's brain. Hmm. And as a result of that, when you say a word, a dyslexic has to go out and get the sound from these different pools of neurons, bring it together to make a sound, understand what's being said, Hmm. and respond back. So it takes a little bit of time. Interesting. The other thing is that, to give you an idea how common it is, about 10% of the people are dyslexics. But the thing that's interesting I've always said is if you want to have a sense of somebody that has maybe borderline dyslexia and so forth, if they're the people in the meeting that never say anything, or sit in the back of the room, mm-hmm. or don't talk very much, it's probably because they have trouble processing and responding. Hmm. And so that's usually an indication of that. Now, that's it sounds like a disadvantage, and to some degree, for your interactions, because we're a very gregarious mm-hmm. society, we're very language-based, mm-hmm. we interact, and everybody interacts largely the same, um, but dyslexics are a little different. The other thing that gives dyslexic, so it's a disadvantage in terms of language arts, mm-hmm. and communication, mass. There's, there's basically three kinds or four kinds of major dyslexia. One is <clears throat> those that have enhanced skills and capabilities in spatial and mechanical. Another one are those that have understanding of the interconnectedness of things. So they're really good at metaphors. They're good at bringing across mm. things and putting things together. Well, how did you, I would have never put those things together. Mm. The third one is they manage abstract reasoning very well. And the fourth thing is they're usually good at problem-solving. Um, yeah, I'd say largely problem-solving. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> The that's the those are the strengths of it. 
you have to still deal with the language and the processing part. Mm-hmm. But dyslexics process information differently, and that's their advantage. Hmm. And let me explain by that. Dyslexics, when they go out and look at the world, they see the world through aggregates of different pods of neurons. Mm-hmm. And so they're able to associate things together that normally people wouldn't understand or see they they would they see things other people don't see so they're very creative very creative very problem solving oriented and they're able to solve things that nobody can else see to give you an example 35 percent of all the entrepreneurs in the united states are dyslexic i actually have that written down that's what mark told me he's like run that by him 30 percent of all the CEOs in the United States are dyslexic. That's crazy. And so it gives you strength hmm. because, because really what you're trying to do, dyslexics are able to assimilate vast amounts of discordant information hmm. and put it into packages that they can then apply and make sense of. So you can bring together things that seemingly are discordant, and then you solve problems. You can see things that other people mm. can't see. So it's it's the advantage of dyslexia mm-hmm. is it makes you very unusual in that yeah, regard. That makes sense. That makes sense. So then, when I was in grad, take you back to graduate yeah. school. <clears throat> what I the job that I did in graduate school, I did two things. I I had a teaching assistantship, and my teaching assistantship was to, they gave me students that were failing out of medical school, and they said, you can get them. You can save them. Hmm. And so what my role was for five years, they would bring me a failing medical student, and my role was to save them, mm-hmm. to help them through medical school. And since I understood learning disabilities, it was easy for me to see where they were failing. Did a lot of them have learning disabilities? Some had learning disabilities, but almost all of them had a weak background. Hmm. Many of them were minorities, and so they didn't have the robustness they needed for that kind of work. And so what I would do is take them and fill in the blanks. And that really worked well. Hmm. But the second thing that it helped me with in terms of dyslexia is that there was a problem that couldn't be solved. There had been um, 20 years of research on what they were trying to do is they were trying to figure out um, when you have a premature infant, the infant does not have adequate enzymes in the liver to purge the breakdown of blood, which you normally go from fetal hemoglobin to more adult hemoglobin. It's a natural occurring process that mm-hmm. happens just past infancy. So when you're an infant in the womb, you have a fetal blood <clears throat> because you have different requirements for oxygenation than you have for when you're out on your own breathing. Mm-hmm. But what they would do is they would take a child and shine blue light on them 
to eliminate or break down the the um, bilirubin that was a byproduct of fetal hemoglobin. But the problem, the reason it was important to do that is that if you didn't get it out of the system fast enough, it caused severe mental retardation. But what they didn't know was what was the mechanism, how blue light destroyed this very complex chemical. Mm-hmm. It was a huge kind of bio biomolecule, and they didn't, and they were concerned about that they were eliciting. Other problems, they were trying to solve one by doing something else. And they'd, so they'd spent 20 years studying this, and they couldn't find out what the problem, uh, how it worked. Mm-hmm. So the professor that, she was a photochemist, and so she said, I think you can figure out how this thing works, even though very prominent researchers had... <laughs> worked on this thing for 20 years they couldn't do it so what i did i merged together synthetic organic chemistry biochemistry and quantum mechanics into a composite solution to explain how blue light was destroying this and i did it through quantum mechanics and trapping reactive intermediates and then characterizing them and then using synthetic organic chemicals to then create the synthetic intermediate so that I could prove the process that it would go through. And so... Easy stuff. (laughs) It was easy stuff. And I spent five years doing that. And interestingly enough, it's kind of funny... They let me stay in the graduate program. Remember I said they didn't want the students right. with it because of the, my GRE? Yeah. Well, at the end of first semester, um, I was one of the top students in the medical program. So they let me stay. But they said, you can only come into school on probation. Hmm. So just to let you know, I graduated in five years, summa cum laude, on probation from wow. graduate school. That's crazy. Because they can, can this guy do this? Yeah. And so when I was in graduate school, there were 33 graduate students. In five years, only three of us ever graduated. Oh, what? So it was... What was your degree in? Biochemistry and organic chemistry. Wow. And then, was that your PhD or did you go on and No, that do was more? my PhD. Nice. I did a postdoc in... Uh, photochemistry when I was working in Vanderbilt University and I was trying to isolate and characterize the uh, photochemical potential of a naturally occurring uh, environmental toxin and so we were able to identify that but Mm. as it turned out um, I didn't stay there long enough to finish that project Mm. Jolene and I came back here and that's an important thing because um, we we came back she we met in graduate school mm-hmm. and she was she was in biochemistry but her work was in nutritional biochemistry and so we met in biochemistry and um, so 
that's a long story in itself. <laughs> yeah, we could go into it. <clears throat> in graduate school, as my wife said, everybody advised her, all the other graduate students said, stay away from this guy. <laughs> he's, he's obviously on drugs. <laughs> and I lived on 36 cups of coffee a day. What? Wait, are you serious? 36, three 12-pot per coffees every day. You're kidding me. Every day. Because some of my experiments would last for three straight days. You'd have to take measurements every 15 minutes. You drank 36 cups cups of coffee coffee a day. Every day. Every day. Oh, my goodness. Did that that mess you up at all, or were you fine? I was just... Is they, that's why they thought that I was on some kind of speed. <laughs> oh, um, my goodness. And the reason is that I didn't interact with anybody else because I was all the time working. Yeah. And I, um, uh, and then my wife, my now wife, but back then, I was in this one lab, big lab by myself, and she said she was in the lab and used the balance in the lab for a year. And she said, you never saw me. For an entire year, you you were so disconnected from the world. No kidding. You never even knew I was there. And then one day, I, <laughs> I met her in the hallway, and I said, hello, who are you? <clears throat> and she was telling me what her research was, and she was working with saffron, which is a natural... Uh, ingredient and um, you know for flavoring yeah and they were looking at the impact on atherosclerosis and I said oh that's a complex organic molecule and I said um, within a day it'll be excreted out and have no effect on your research so your research is really no good have a nice day and no I, way yep <laughs> so we had a rough start <laughs> I was pretty mad at mad at you after that I would assume that's funny yeah but I would say, kind of interjecting this in there, yeah. <clears throat> I think she is by far the only person in my life that ever believed in me. Hmm. Everybody else just always a little skeptical, hmm. always wondered. and But she has always been my strongest advocate. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, as she said, she felt like God told her that who she was looking for was a man named Jim. And she didn't even know me. She wasn't even graduate school then. And I really think it was her faithfulness to what God wanted. And she always seemed to believe in me and see in me the things that other people couldn't see. Hmm. So then, <clears throat> when I um, I graduated from school, I went to a postdoc and then came back with my wife, who she went down w- with me to Vanderbilt, and it wasn't a good place for her. And so she ended up coming back. Mm-hmm. And I had to decide at that point in time... <clears throat> I was either going to have to give up my all I'd worked for to stay with her because if she left, I knew that that was going to be the end. Mm-hmm. Or I would 
stay there and continue to do my work or I'd leave and be with her. And that was a very important thing to do. And so I decided the career path that I was on, I was given up. And so I gave up and I came back with her <clears throat> because I knew that our marriage would be over if I didn't. Hmm. And so we came back. How long were you married when you had to make that decision? <clears throat> Probably a year and a half. Hmm. Pretty early. Pretty early. Dang. Pretty early. And <clears throat> did it seem like a really did it seem like <clears throat> like the end of the world at that time? Or like Looking back, how do you think about that decision? I was such a selfish, introspective person mm -hmm. because I had always been by myself, for myself. Sure. It ended up creating in me kind of a self-focusedness mm -hmm. that everybody I didn't care about. And I think that came over time. It just it never worked for me. Um, and when I realized that, I said, for once in my life, I was going to do something for somebody else and I was going to do the right thing. Hmm. And it was so important for me, I just left. I just, I, I don't think there was anything more important than making that decision. Yeah. And sometimes in a marriage, you have to make hard choices. And I would say that's the best choice I ever made in my life. Hmm. And it set me on a path of trying to be more responsive to my wife. And I wasn't a good listener. Mm -hmm. Um. Too much background of my drill sergeant dad, mm -hmm. too much rigidity, so, so it made me hard to be around. Um, but that was an important decision that I made. Yeah. So then when I came back, she had a great job. She's a brilliant person. She's very innovative. She's always on the cutting edge of things. She always has been. She's mm -hmm. very prophetic in a lot of things. She sees the future. And so then what I did is that, okay, I've just got to find a job. So I went to apply for a job. And the first job I applied for was a special chemist job. And applied for it, met the person, and he said, we don't want you. Hmm. So my wife said, okay, you have to keep applying for jobs. And I said, no, God told me that he was going to give me this job. He was going to give me this job. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, one day they called up and said, we, we want you. Dang. So then I worked there for four years. There's a lot to go into that. And then <clears throat> I felt like God wanted me to leave. So after four and a half years, I left. And then so I figured I'll be a consultant or something like that. And that failed flat. Mm -hmm. And then... I applied for another job, and this person called me up. It was at the university, and said, "We won't hire you. We won't talk to you, and we won't interview you. Go away." Hmm. But I had all the credentials for the job. That's crazy. Why did they say that? I, don't, I have no idea. Huh. 
So actually, during this period of time, from the time I left the hygienic lab to the southern, I became a certified industrial hygienist. And a CIH is somebody who blends together six or seven fields mm-hmm. of engineering type things to solve problems. And but um, wouldn't hire me. It wouldn't talk to me. And I was praying. God said was going to give me this job. And so my wife was very discordant because she said. You gotta apply for a job. I mm-hmm. said, no jobs. It, God is gonna give me this job. Yeah, and I'm supposed to wait. So I waited six months. And Dang. The guy, and the guy called me up and said, "Come in. We're gonna hire you." Dang. So that's crazy. I man. got that. Got the job, and then on the same path, ten years later, God showed me that. Uh, he was going to give me this new job, and uh, this was a, a director in this environmental health and safety office. And so I applied for it, and the vice president for the university at that time s- said they had a great big search committee because this was a pretty important job. And they had a big search committee, and they, the vice president said, I don't want to give it to this guy. I can't give it to him. Hmm. So they spent two years looking for somebody to replace the job. And the guy said, we can't find anybody more qualified than this guy. So after two years, they gave me the job, put me on probation. Sheesh. And then after about a year, then they finally gave me the job. And then, so I did that until from 1992 to 2008. And in 2008, I had two things happen. One of the things was the university had a big flood, and what my role was to create cleanup scenarios for two and a half million feet of flooded buildings. And this was June 13th, and they had a big meeting, and the president came to me and said, you got got until August 15th to get this two and a half million square feet cleaned Hmm. and ready to go. And that was my job. But during that period is when um, the vice president for research at the university came to me and said, we've been trying for years to fill this role, and we can't find anybody. And we talked to different people at different universities, and they said, you've got somebody there that can do this job. Why don't you offer him the job? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't we don't think we're going to mm-hmm. do that. But anyway, after two years, the guy came to me and he said, Gosh. "We want you to do this job." And so, interestingly enough, God had told me almost twenty years before that this I would have this job. Hmm. And so, it was a very interesting scenario for me um so in the end in 2008 um i didn't apply for the job i told them that i didn't feel i was qualified to do the job and i wrote them a three page analysis of what the job required Mm -hmm. and what kind of person they needed to be looking for and they said there's nobody that could have written what you wrote what do you mean? Because of the complexity and the oh, breadth of it. Yeah. 
And they said, no, we're going to have you do it. And so I didn't apply for it, and the Board of Regents approved me for the job. So I was an associate vice president for the last eight years of my work. Great. Why do you think it was Mm. that throughout your life, God put so much like rejection and skepticism into just you as a person? Like That can't be easy to feel time and time again. But surely, looking back... There was a purpose in all that. Why do you think God did that? I think it was probably to learn to rely on Him mm-hmm. for everything. Remember, we started this very early, and I said that I knew God was up there and I was going to find Him. Yeah. I think God has honored that desire by constantly showing me his presence. And it's something that I didn't need to strive to do. It was something to be just resting in what he was going to have me do for him. Hmm. There's difference between having some passionate and working hard at something and having your own dreams and goals and so forth, but at the same time, allowing God to guide you on your path. So when you think about my path through college, through graduate school, four different jobs, Mm -hmm. God always showed me the next step. Mm Mm-hmm. He always would reveal what's next. And all I needed to do was learn to wait and depend upon Him. And so my life is filled with constant monuments of proof of God being in my life. Hmm. And you think that all ties back to that one night when you were eight years old? I think it all ties back to my passion. So to give you an idea of what I did in high school and college— not having a background of what to do, you know, mm-hmm. wasn't going to an evangelical church, you know, just I'm just OJT, yeah, you know, yeah. learning it on my own. One of the things I used to do because I was going to Catholic church at that time on my by myself. At night, I would go sit in the Catholic church, and I would sit there until the wee hours of the morning, waiting for God. I said, I would just sit there, and I said, God, I know you're here, and I'm just going to wait for you. And it was a constant thing I did a no lot of my life. Hmm. And then when I was in college, there was a chapel, a small church that was north of campus. And on weekends, it was not at all unusual. Like on Saturday night, I would go to the church. The church was never locked. I would, And they had candles and things like that in there. I'd go sit in there you know, from 1 or 2 to 5 in the morning just waiting for God. Hmm. I figured he'd someday he would show up, and I didn't know when. <clears throat> and then one of the things that's on this pattern is that in September of 1982, my wife and I, we, were, we bought a house in West Branch, and we were sleeping in the living room as I was trying to remodel the upstairs. 
God woke me up in the middle of the night. In fact, it was just about 12. Mm-hmm. And he said, drinking separates you from me. And this is what I'm going to show you what it means. And what he did, he removed his spirit from me. I can't describe it any more than that. Hmm. In that experience, it was the most soul-crunching, crushing experience. The sense of loneliness, the sense of darkness, the sense of absolute abject emptiness overwhelmed me just for a moment. Hmm. And I thought, I know what hell's like. Hmm. I'll never do it. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I realized that God simply said, drinking separates you from me. He didn't say don't drink. He said it separates. And so what it was was a choice for me, which, of course, instantaneous. Since that night, I've never had any alcohol ever. Really? Never. Only takes one experience like that to wean. Yeah, it. yeah, no kidding. And but what it was was a decision on my part hmm. that relationship with him was the most important thing in my life. And so it's just a continuous litany of me wanting to connect with God, to have him vibrant, hmm. real in my life. So, I mean, was God like actually talking to you or you just feel like you just I've, felt that or like what, what was that experience like? I've had twice that I've had an audible voice Yeah, that I thought was God, twice. Once was then and the second one uh, when he asked me to do something specifically uh, and I was in a church praying for the church. It was a friend's church there in West Branch before church started. And he audibly spoke to me. And I immediately opened my eyes and said, did anybody else hear that? No. It kind of reminded me of Paul. Mm. Um, what did he say? I'm not going to go into that on yeah. the second one. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because <clears throat> it's it gets into a whole it's a it's a three hour conversation yeah. that gets really um, challenging. Mm. Um, do you ask for God to like talk to you, or do you just feel like He's rewarding your faithful seeking Him out? He's rewarding my faithful seeking it out. I don't put any prescription on God. Mm. He's revealed himself through nature. Mm-hmm. He's revealed himself through his work when I see God working in people's lives, mm-hmm. incredibly, just miraculously so. Um, I can see him in his work, for example, in this church with the college students. Yeah, I can see him in the way he touches certain people and all of a sudden it just transformed their lives mm-hmm. like never before. That's Those are all evidences of the truth of God. 
but how I, I think how God works with me most is that in my desire to know God, it was in, must have been in 1977 or early 78, um, my wife bought me a Bible, RSVO Bible. And I asked God, I said, God, I have a real busy life. I work real hard. I've got a lot of stuff. I'm trying to remodel the house and so forth, so I need your help. Every day, I want you to wake me up at 5 o'clock so I can do a Bible study and pray before I go to work. You ask God that? I ask God that. Yeah. And I said, God, I need for you to wake me up, and I know you're faithful. The next morning at 5.00, I woke up. No way. Since that day, God has gotten me up every morning since 1978, <laughs> and that is my morning. Every morning he wakes you up at 5 a.m.? 5 or shortly thereafter. And what happens was that what I decided to do is I get up and I have a cup of coffee. Yeah. And I read my Bible. And every year I try to read through the entire Bible, every year. Mm -hmm. And as I read it, I write down a lot of notes in my Bible about what it's saying to me, what it's convicting me of my sin, what are those things that I should be doing that I'm not. And then am I being faithful? And I want God to reveal himself. So I've done that every day. And that's my morning. That's awesome. I've just, I've always done it. So you don't set an alarm clock? Oh, no. Wow. Because if 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 it's truly the Holy Spirit, yeah. he knows what time it is. Right. <laughs> yeah. And... And then, so to give you an idea, of, I was telling a, a Christian that I work with back then, and and I said, oh, she said, I can't get up that early. And I said, oh, you can. I said, ask God to wake you up at 5 o'clock. And I promise you, in your sincerity, he will wake you up. Mm -hmm. She came in the next day and said, guess what happened? At 5 o'clock, he woke me up. Incredible. And so she did it for a couple of months, and then finally one day she said, I am so tired. I'm exhausted all the time. So I told God, leave me alone. And I didn't wake up at 5. Hmm. And I said, I think you might reconsider. Yeah. And so my desire to know God and to see His work and to see his hand and to be faithful to him has grown in paramount importance to me. Because one of the things that I desire above all else is that I do not want to become bitter hmm. as you get older hmm. because you get more disillusioned and things like that. Mm -hmm. So contrary to that, I'm not only not bitter, but I'm a very happy person. Yeah. I just... I love life every day. I love the beauty of the sunrise. I love it when it rains. Mm. I love God's fingerprints 
over his work. It, gives, it enables you to see people differently. Mm-hmm. You can look at their failings just like you have. You can look at their weaknesses just like you have. And you can grant them grace in the same way that God grants you grace. Mm. And what that does is it changes the nature of your relationship with people. Because in that grace, when you see them and you see them the way God sees them, then really what you want is grace and you want them to be redeemed and to be transformed by the power of His Spirit. And that really is very important in my life Hmm. because of what He's done to me. So, for example, years ago, that really affected our household. My dad, as I said, was a pretty tough guy, and he would explode if things went wrong. And so that anger was always pinned up in me, and Mm -hmm. so I had issues with anger. I'd yell and scream and carry on, so I was emotionally, I'd create emotionally charged environment, which was very harmful to my kids. I didn't. I never hit anybody or did anything, but you right. yell and scream, and it, it's you know it's verbally abusive. Yeah. And so, God in His faithfulness, my through the patience of my wife, I went through Scripture. I took tapes, the kind of that stuff, and I did everything I could to overcome anger. And actually, God changed me. Hmm. I do awesome. not have an issue with that anymore i don't get frustrated i just that's great i'm curious about your spiritual disciplines because i mean you say you wake up at 5 a.m read your bible but like i'm curious about your prayer life uh you mentioned to me earlier about how you and your wife fast for four days a week yep um talk to me a little bit about those and how just the spiritual disciplines have shaped your life and specifically fasting too i think that's super intriguing the um, I try every morning. I've got a whole series of cards that I run through, um, praying for specific uh, verses mm-hmm. out of Scripture, uh, because I think spraying, praying God's word is very important because it's God's word, right? And His word transforms you. Yeah. So, you know, like creating me a clean heart, oh God, mm-hmm. <laughs> or. Um, uh, or the other one is, um, uh, oh, what's I say it every day. Um, uh, watch over the door of my mouth. No way. Guard, you think it's Ephesians 140, I mean, um, uh, Psalm 141.3. I'll say it in a second. Yeah. I'm just thinking wrong. But, you know, that's the one I say, uh, set a guard over the um, door of my mouth. And... Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity and do not let me eat of their delicacies. Mm. So that's a verse that I pray for myself to learn to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. And there's many other verses that I pray for me and my children. And I pray those verses which are declarations of his faithfulness. And I pray them for each person in the family. I have a whole series of cards that I go through. Mm. I um, pray two sections of Ephesians through every day, you know. And 
I try to do it every day. And and then I have a whole series of other prayers that are specific to each child, the strengths and weaknesses of each child to mm. pray for. Um, so I go through a whole series of cards after I do my Bible study. And so now I would say to read my Bible and to say my prayers, it takes probably about an hour and a half a day. It's great. And then once I finish, then I go in and I meet with my wife and we have our prayer time. Mm-hmm. Together? Together. Very important to pray together. We pray God's word. We pray for each other. We pray for our children. We pray for the church. We pray for our government. We pray for our president. We pray for lots of things. How do those prayers differ from your prayers um, by yourself after you're done reading your Bible? Is it pretty much the same or is it like... Uh, My prayers on my own with my Bible are more speaking forth God's word. Okay. Actually praying his promises. Sure. Uh, and then, but also praying specifically for the promises of God in my children's lives. Mm. The praying that I pray with my wife is more freeform. Sure. What's on my heart that day? What is our experience? Uh, what does the Lord lead us to? What What do we feel heavy on our heart? We pray for that, mm. and then we do that every day to start of every day, and at the end of every day when we're going, we get in bed. And then we have our prayer time. And the reason that I think it's important is that, and I think we started doing that probably, oh, 20 years ago maybe. Hmm. Um, It enables you to pray for your spouse. It softens your heart towards your spouse and it keeps the Lord vibrant in your walk to help you be a better person for your spouse because really you know if the two become one which is what the scripture says Mm -hmm. then the value of that other person needs to be paramount and that value grows and it's grown in my life for my wife you know, a lot of my years of marriage, I was a complete jerk. Hmm. And, but God helped me overcome anger, helped me overcome, not completely overcome, but overcome much of selfishness and self centeredness. And prayer helps that because it helps you unify with your spouse. So we've been married this year, it'll be 44 years. Nice. And we've, stuck it out through thick and thin, prayer and our relationship with God is paramount. Hmm. It absolutely is paramount for the faithfulness of God to work in your marriage, and in particular, you, to help you become a better person for your spouse. Hmm. One thing that's encouraging about you telling your story and like you saying, yeah, you, you struggled with anger for a long time or, you know, you stuck it out with Jolene through thick and thin. Like there are times that like things are not great and in your life they've gotten better. And I think the temptation for like young people or myself or some of my friends or whatever is to think like the way things are right now is the way they'll always be. 
you know, which is just not true. Like, like I've been married in August. It will be a year. So not very long, but like the way I think about it is I'm like, um, I don't know. I just, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around the fact that there will come a time when God willing, Jenny and I are married for 44 years, just like you. And you know, a lot of the way that I am will have changed in 44 years. A lot of the way she is will have changed. Like there's a lot about me right now that I'm sure probably drives her nuts that God willing, he's going to change in my life. And like, I just don't think about, uh, future me as often as I should, or the fact that like, I'm not, uh, as good as I will be because God is going to sanctify me even more and more. And so I don't know. I'm just, as you talking, I keep thinking about like, man, I have a lot of life, God willing to, to still live and a lot of things to like shape up. Like the way things are now is not the way they always will be. I don't know if I'm making sense, but you do. And I would say one's life is really similar to water passing through a vessel. Mm -hmm. It's constantly moving. It's not static or river at any one place in time. It's not static. But in that, you can make it static Mm -hmm. by damming it up and being rigid and being unchangeable and being self-focused. And so what does it take to be different than that? One is two things. Life is nothing more than one single thing. It's a decision. Hmm. Everything is the decision. Nobody makes you do anything. It's a decision on your part to weigh to love your wife, to weigh to treat your wife, to weigh to value your wife, to weigh to encourage your wife, to weigh to lead your wife, at times to admonish your wife. But yet, when you're doing that, you're looking towards her best interest. So one, it's a decision to do that. But the second thing is that's equally important with that decision is a willingness to persevere. That's the one thing that I think dyslexia helped me the most with. Hmm. When you can't learn and you can't read and you can't write, The only way that you're going to overcome something like that is incredible perseverance. Mm -hmm. And I would say in my life, I don't know anybody that can persevere longer or work harder or more relentlessly than me. I have never found anybody Hmm. that can match my tenacity. And the reason is, is that when you have to overcome something that you really never overcome, but because an integral part of your life, you learn the value of perseverance. Mm-hmm. And in that, it's a decision. It's a decision to read your Bible. It's a decision to get up in the morning, the value of time with God. It's a decision to pray with your wife every day, twice a day. It's a, it's a decision that you create priorities in life that teach and train you, allow God to work in your life, and that at the same time you look outside yourself 
to the other person that God has brought into your life. Mm. And that includes not only your spouse, but your parents, Mm. your siblings, your friends. And in that, you see people differently. All of a sudden, it's not the world, it's not circle around you. It circles around the hand of God and that you want to participate in that. It's a decision and perseverance, and that's the way it works. Yeah. In an unrelenting nature, that God is there to support you, to redeem you, to transform you, and you can't give up. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm preaching at Salt tonight in a couple hours, actually. Uh, so you go, you need to go. No, no, we got some time. Uh, I'm having a great time. <laughs> but do you have to be anywhere? No, okay, no, cool. I don't. Uh, one of the things I'm preaching about is uh, King David's mighty men. And Eliezer, he's the one who fought so long that his hand stuck to his sword. Yep. You know, and just his the thirty mighty men. Yep. It's an incredible story. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, but really, when you consistent with what I just said, God created in other men's hearts a favor towards David. Because mm-hmm. he was a leader. Mm-hmm. But yet at the same time, David was a man after God's heart. And in that, it says to me that he, what he did was that he saw the value in other people. He valued who they were, what they brought. He cared about them. Mm-hmm. He was passionate about them. And what did they do? They were absolutely loyal totally to a fault but that is not a singular one-sided thing there's reciprocity there think about that right if you had a friend that's somebody that loved you beyond anything that would do anything for you no matter what would you reciprocate yeah totally you totally would and that's what that reflects of his 30 mighty men. And God Mm -hmm. did that to enable him to have the kingdom that he needed to be. Mm -hmm. But he did it because he had passion and commitment and love for the people around him. I think that exactly what you're talking about is best shown when they go get him the bucket of water. You know, that's why I have this tattoo of a bucket right here because bucket of water, you know, and the thing is that he valued it. He valued them by doing what? Pouring it out. Pouring it on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, the end of my sermon, like the big push is like, those guys would give anything for King David because they knew he would do anything for them. They knew he already was giving them his whole heart too. And so like, how much more should we want to be willing to give everything for Jesus? Because he already did give everything for us, you know? So, Oh man, I love that story. I'm excited to preach it. So, <laughs> oh, and it's it's such an inspirational story because it can, it relates so so much to the people around you and the friends that you have mm-hmm. and the relationships you have and how you treat other people. It's it's reciprocal. Yeah. Um. Before we move on, I we never talked about your fasting, and you know maybe do you want to talk about it or would you rather not talk about it? <laughs> well, it's just something we do. Yeah. Um, we fast for 24 hours and, um, we did it because, um, our children, um, 
I noticed one of the things you said to you, and I asked about the kids. Yeah. Are none of my, all my children know God. They grew up there, uh, for example, um, but they don't go to church. Mm. They're, they're, their relationship with God is not intentional, mm-hmm. which is a way it would. But so, like, um, I taught Awana for almost 20 years at Parkview. Yeah. And so, my all my kids went through, well, not my daughter, but my three boys went through Awana program, and you got to be in it for 10 years. And they were in it for 10 years, and they just, you know, you have to know 652 verses, and they just, they just but then they just don't have religion and an active part hmm. of walk with faith. But they know, they know the truth. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of waiting for that. But so yeah, that's, that's why you fast. That's why we fast. They, for they would not forget, and that's why we pray for them, hmm. that they would not forget. Dang. And um, that, to keep their eyes on Jesus. When did you start doing that? What? Fasting. Oh, I, you know, I don't know. It's been quite a number of years. I don't know. And, um, but, you know, after a while, it just, it becomes a way of life. Yeah. That's awesome. Man, four days a week, nothing but water. um, Some pop. But, yeah, uh, but in Zevia, but doesn't have yeah. anything in it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I love Zevia. Nice. Um, what were what were some of your like greatest joys of being a parent? And uh, yeah, what were some of your greatest joys in being a parent? Their accomplishments, mm. you know, seeing what they did. I would say one of the things that I did not have an appreciation for, but I. I certainly grew over the years was my wife's commitment to homeschooling. Yeah, let's talk about that. She I was I was always skeptical, not yeah. always, but most of the time I was skeptical, but she was relentless mm-hmm. in making sure that uh, they were well educated. I would say mostly overeducated. Yeah. So um because wait, was it illegal at the time you started doing it? Oh yeah. Oh, by the way, it wasn't legal. I can't trying to remember when it became legal. I think <laughs> like my nineteen eighty eight or something. So you guys just pulled them out of school and you're like, we're doing this never, on our own. Never put them in school. Really? Yeah. See, our daughter was the first one, and um, why'd you <clears throat> why'd you think to do that? Well, it's my wife's idea. I mean, she is always cutting edge. You need to talk to her about yeah. what she knows about nutrition and diet. And Dude, I got to have her on here. She's just she's an incredible encyclopedia of everything. Mm. Um, but um, <clears throat> she was not happy with the schools, the kindergarten, and thought it was poorly done, and uh, it was just not not well done. And she thought she could probably do it better. <clears throat> And but it, there was a point in time where all of us have to make hard choices, mm-hmm. and so she was quite accomplished in research and nutrition and so forth. And she loved to work; and she's very good at it. But she had to make a choice: I can't homeschool and work. Mm-hmm. So she decided to give up work and homeschool. Wow! <clears throat> and then she put. Tremendous amounts of effort in the homeschooling. 
Um, and so our first, um, I think she started probably in, must have been about 81 and so forth. But during that period of time, if they found that you were homeschooling, it was considered child abuse. No way. And they would take your children away from you. Oh, my And goodness. so during that time, talking about living life with a very loose hand, you had to be willing, when they knocked on the front door, walk out the back door and leave. Everything you have, you walked out and left. What do you mean? <clears throat> they would take your children and they would take you to court and they would convict you of truancy and convict you of child abuse and take your kids away. Sheesh. <clears throat> and you guys were just okay with that risk? Well, we figured we'd walk out the back door. Wow. And that's what we did. And my wife was absolutely determined that that's what we were going to do. And I said, I'm, that's what we're going to do. Wait, so did they ever come knock on your door? Well, actually, as it turned out, yeah, they did. <laughs> <clears throat> but as it turned out, there's a couple of different background data. Um, we work with the Homeschool Legal Defense Association out of Washington, D.C., and they were fairly certain that we were going to be the test case that would take it all the way to the Supreme Court wow. here in Iowa. Wow. But as it turned out, somebody else, the guy that ran the Bluebird School, was arrested for that, for doing that. Mm. And, and then the district attorney, uh, the superintendent, turned our name over to the district attorney in, must have been 1988 or something, uh, to charges with truancy and child abuse. And as it, and that was, this was the father of my daughter's best friends. Wow. <laughs> and so as it turned out, um, the Supreme Court ruled that very day that the um, truancy laws were too vague, so they threw them out. So we got past that. Sheesh. That's but crazy. Our, but our daughter was, I mean, she was what you would want to have as a student. She was mm -hmm. incredible. She was just an incredible student. 99s on everything. She just, there wasn't anything she couldn't do. She was brilliant. And you guys were like pioneers of homeschooling. Oh, yes. There were seven. Well, I say <laughs> yes, but it was really my wife. And there were, I think, seven families in Iowa at that time doing this. Wow. There were very few. She was a pioneer. She does pioneering things. She's a really bold woman. She's got to come on this podcast. I got to talk to her. And so we homeschooled her. And then <clears throat> uh, actually um, we decided to have her. She took a couple of... She took. A, she was in choir in. Um, I think it was. In, it must have been high school. She wanted to take choir, and she took choir, and in. She did something else. Um, I guess it was eighth grade. They. She took uh, an accelerated geometry class in high school, in eighth grade, and they were curious um, about her, and. Um, so she did the accelerated geometry, and, she, and the teachers came to talk to us and said, you know, your daughter always solves the problems, always gets them right, and doesn't like nobody else. Mm -hmm. 
Everybody else does them the same way, and your daughter does them completely different. We can't figure hmm. out how she does that. Um, so, and then she took a couple of more courses. But most of our kids, they start, they finished, our boys finished high school like by 15. And then so then we have them go to Kirkwood and like take all the computer science courses they could get at Kirkwood and all the math and everything. Hmm. So when they were ready to go to college, they were very fluent in computers and math and things like that. Do you, do you still? How do you feel about public schools now? Would you do the same thing all over again? And yes, I would. And the reason being is that they don't emphasize education. And if you, when you start learning some of the nuances of what's going on in, in um, public education, um, I don't think it has the robustness of what you need. So, for example, if you would compare the Eastern private schools mm-hmm. to homeschooling, there's, they're very similar. They're very similar. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, but also remember what a huge cost it is. It's a huge cost. Somebody's given up their life for this. Sure. And homeschooling becomes a way of life. It's not an extracurricular activity. Mm-hmm. It's something that's very difficult and it's a huge commitment of time. But for the most part, in elementary school, every year of homeschooling, you advance two years. Hmm. Interesting. And so my kids, they, um, uh, I think all of them, one went, now let's see, four years? Yeah, one that goes four years. Most of them graduated in three years or three and a half. And mostly math-based finance. Um, I got two boys that that graduated with a degree in mathematics and computer science. Hmm. That's awesome. I'd do it again. One of them's in cryptocurrency. Is that right? Yeah, one of them's in crypto. He's so uh, he uh, works with a group of small people in a startup in New York City, and it's called AirSwap. And what they do is. Um, he works in Ethereum, which is the language of Ethereum. And what they do is they do programming. They initiate, develop new coins. And what they did, what he wanted to do was develop a 24-hour-a-day trading platform for peer-to-peer transactions. And that's mm. what they did last year. So he developed. And so. And it's running right now? Oh, yeah. It's oh, running wow. right now. That's awesome. Do you and invest that's in any? What he, that's what he likes. Do you invest in any cryptocurrencies? Oh, I have. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> no, no, I still have some investments oh, nice. in cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Um, but it's it's um, on cutting edge, hmm. and so they all like. And my one son, he just finished uh, working at a hedge fund in Chicago. He did the finance, and I've got a daughter who runs the finance for L'Oreal out of New York City. Well, do you have any uh, financial advice for any of the listeners that they're probably not getting in school or that like maybe might not be so obvious to them, but things that you think are important? I think first and foremost would be don't spend all your money. Seems like common sense, but probably not to most people. If you were to look at the data that's out there, 
over probably 60-70% of the people that retire have no money. Hmm. I would say of the millennialist, most all of them have no money. And the reason they don't is, is they believe that they would rather invest it now in their own experiences, which is very valuable to them. Hmm. So I would say if I could advise them, first and foremost would be don't spend all your money. Take, make a decision. Mm-hmm. Take a certain amount of money and have it automatically go to some kind of investment account. And you don't even see it. It just goes. Yep. Like a 401k type thing? No, not a 401. Probably a Roth IRA sure. or something like that. That'd be a better way to do it. Because, of, see, eventually the government, well, there, in fact, there's a new rule that's already passed the House. And really what it is is they're basically going to increase taxes on your 401ks. Mm. And the reason, rather than taking small amounts out for your retirement and so forth, they're going to require you to take it out in 10 years. And so then, therefore, it's going to increase the, your taxable income. And so it's, it's, a way, it's a way of circumventing by being direct about increasing taxes. And so they're going to increase taxes by forcing you to withdraw it all within 10 years. Withdraw, withdraw what? Your retirement. In 10 years? Yeah, in 10 years. When you get to retirement age, you got you got 10 years, you're going to have to uh, pull it out. <clears throat> right now, you can dribble it over 30 years, and so you have a low tax sure. base. So the, it's a way the government is going to increase taxes on people, but they're going to do it surreptitiously. Tough. You said that already passed the House? Yep, it's already passed the House. 496 to 3 or something like that. No way. Yeah. Wow. It's a done deal. Dang. So, and the second thing is, is that you know, I've got one son. He's very good. He he saves a lot of money, and whenever he buys something, he's very judicious about what he buys. Mm-hmm. He only buys it if he absolutely needs it, and he buys the best quality thing that he can buy because it then becomes an investment and not an expendable. Sure. And so that's so he being judicious and save, Mm -hmm. and then set up something like a swab or a Vanguard account where you don't pay much fees to maintain it, and diversify, have them help you set up a diversification plan, or you can actually go on and do it yourself. And, And then every month, distribute your money and do it all your life. Hmm. What do you think about all these student loans? You think it's a massive problem, as big of a problem as people think it is? Uh, yes, it is. <clears throat> because one is you can't bankrupt out, mm. which is another big problem. And the second thing is um, you can delay some of the payments, but the, 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 the price that you're paying, the interest rates you're paying, you're going to be paying that thing for virtually your entire life. Mm. It's a big deal. It's a big cost. Yeah. Um, my wife and I, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm gonna say it anyways, cause somebody might find it helpful. But we, uh, when we got married, I brought in $16,000 of student loan debt, which is not too much, but no. it's definitely not enjoyable. And my goal was, we're going to get rid of this thing in, in two years. I want to get done with it in 24 months. By God's grace, we ended up doing it in 10 months. Yeah. And so we just, 
I mean, we were aggressive with it, and it feels so good to be like. That is admirable. That is absolutely admirable. Yeah. And so my my kids, um, the they only had some student loans for graduate school, and uh, no, I think one had a little for undergraduate, but but they paid them off right away. Yeah. What do you tell them to do? And like me, I'm I'm asking for myself too. Like, what's the next step after people become debt free? What's their next steps? Be is it like saving for a house? Is it start saving for retirement now? Like, what do you, what do you think? I would, I think I would just uh, de- put develop an investment account and start putting your money in an investment account mm-hmm. and have it start accrue interest. Um, if you end up in the end buying a house, my feeling is the house, um, the housing market is slowing down. Mm. So I think there'll be better prices in the future. They've come down a little bit. I'm expecting them to come down more. Um, even though interest rates are going down, um, people are too saturated with debt to really take advantage of it. And what you want to do mm. is that you want to accumulate some money so when things go awry, you can take advantage of it. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Um. I was going to talk to you about some health stuff, but maybe I'll save that for if Jolene comes on. Is that a good idea? Would oh, you like yes. To talk about she's, it? A, she's a personification of knowledge Great. with that. I'll just save she it, and it. I'll ask her all those questions. And I, am, 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 um, I benefit from it. Yeah, I'm sure. Because of what we grow in our garden. We have huge gardens. We get a lot out of our garden. We do... She's very careful about what we eat. Mm. What's like her area of expertise? Is it like nutrition? Nutrition. Nice. That's great. Yeah, it's nutrition. But since then, she's always, she's very knowledgeable. She reads constantly. Mm. She's a voracious reader. Um, A lot of diets and stuff have come and gone, but uh, have you guys stuck to anything for a really long time like a specific diet or anything anything i would say more than anything else it's very healthy organic based um keep away from the stuff that's processed yeah so she makes pretty much everything from scratch in some form or i do that's great cool but she's the one you need to Oh, dude, that. I know. When I told people, I was like, yeah, Jim Walker's coming on the podcast. They're like, what? Get Jolene on too. So I'm like, yeah, I probably should. Yeah, she's she's the knowledgeable one. Yeah, that's awesome. I just come along for the ride. <laughs> well, hey, we're uh, we're at almost two hours, so I got one uh, final question for you. And it's, when you think about future generations, like the next, you know, whatever, when you think about future generations, are you generally more optimistic about it or pessimistic about it? I'm very, very optimistic about it. Let me tell you why. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I have every confidence because one of the things I, I do a lot is I listen to prophetic people mm. and, and, and kind of look at the signs of the times there is a revival that's going to come. It's the the beginnings of it are starting. They're all they're almost invisible. 
And it's the young people that are going to be largely responsible for the um, the revival. Hmm. And the revival is going to be throughout this nation, and not only this nation, but throughout the world. And there's going to be a true revival. Now, <clears throat> there's a downside to that. Yeah. Let, me under- let me help you understand what I think, my, at least my bias is. It is pretty rare for people in and of themselves to be willing to change. Something, usually an external factor or a force, pushes them to change. Mm. Just like 9-11, all of a sudden for three months, people were wanted to start going to church, and yeah. you know, it was revival, but it was short-lived. Mm. The revival, in my opinion, is going to come because there are going to be stressors on this culture. Hmm. And those stressors more than likely will come in two areas. One is financial, and two is stress on the church. And the stress on the church is going to come because the church is going to have to decide if it's going to be a sheep church or a goat church. What do you mean? Do you adhere to the biblical basis of what the church is, or you don't? Hmm. The Lord always had a very clear, what I consider to be an on-off switch. He never allowed you to be on the fence. Who is not for me is against me. Mm-hmm. That's pretty clear. Right. And my feeling is that there's going to be pressure that comes on the church to form force churches to choose. Hmm. And in that, you're going to have biblical churches and you're going to have other churches. The second thing is you're going to have economic stressors. And those economic stressors are going to force people to decide what their priorities in life are. It's going to press them and it's going to push them. And just like when you look at the time of judges, what did God do? Always the same thing. When that circle thing kept going, right. things would be great. They would forget God. They were prosperous. They forgot God. Then all of a sudden, they became under subject subjugation. That circuitous nature sometimes takes hundreds of years, but it always happens. Hmm. And you think we're about back I, to the top of it? I think we're near that all of a sudden, the Lord's going to say, you're going to have to choose. Hmm. And I think that revival is going to be driven by necessity. And in that, it's going to force people to choose. And Mm. remember, I started very early about life is a choice. Mm -hmm. People are going to have to choose. And that revival is going to come as a result of people choosing. And that choice is going to be the right choice that's going to be made by young people that is really going to stir the nation for, for the Lord. And I am absolutely thrilled. And that's one of the reasons why I'm involved in this church. Mm -hmm. I believe in salt Mm -hmm. because salt is beginning. It's it's the the leaven among the young people Mm -hmm. that is going to happen all over this nation as salt things continue to expand. Because once people leave college and they take that passion and commitment, that leaven is going to leaven our culture. Mm -hmm. You get me pumped up, man. 
You can see how important the work of salt is. Yeah. It's the leaven that's going to revolutionize and evangelize our culture, and mm. I am so excited to see it. Dang. Thanks for saying that, man. That's a good word. That's very encouraging. That's awesome. Well, wow. thanks a lot. Dude, it's that been, was a lot of fun. It's if, been great. Uh, if somebody really wanted to get a hold of you, can they email you? Yeah. Uh, my email Gmail account, jcw2822. Boom. At gmail.com. Yep. There you have it, folks. Any last words? My best to you and what you're doing. And thanks, Jim. may your passion and commitment for the young people be felt and seen to give them passion and commitment for the Lord because that's what gives you hope and that gives you a future and that's what we all want. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, Jamie. It was a blast, man. See you, folks. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I know I had a great time recording it with him. Um, Help get the word out about Jim's story and the way that God's used him and uh, promote the podcast if you're passionate about it like us on not like us follow us on instagram i think it's the grain of salt podcast something like that you'll find it uh but subscribe to this share the episode tweet it to all your friends do whatever you need to but uh we appreciate the support and um yeah love you guys see you next time